0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 237. There's a tidal wave coming. What
1: you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now, here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey, everybody, welcome
0: back to the Bob Murphy Show. We got a selection of clips today to make this one fun and snappy. Some people were sending me things regarding the New World Order, so let's go ahead and jump right in and play this selection. So this is coming from Adam Curry and John, I don't know how to say this guy's last name. It's spelled D-V-O-R-A-K. I'm aware of their podcast, but I do not listen to it regularly. So I don't know how to pronounce that guy's last name. But anyway, they went out and assembled this compilation. So I'm not going to play the whole thing because some of the ones I've already played for you folks earlier and then a listener, uh, you know, with Joe Biden recently talking about New World Order and then George H.W. Bush. So I'm not playing those, but here's some other ones just to show you that this is not a one or two off thing, that there's lots of political figures around the world who have been talking about the formation of a new world order. So let's take a listen.
2: There's a need for a new world order, but it has different characteristics in different parts of the world.
1: Never before has a new world order had to be assembled from so many different perceptions or on so global a scale nor has any previous order had to combine the attributes of the historic balance of power system with global democratic opinion and the exploding technology of the contemporary period.
2: After 1989, President Bush said, and it's a phrase that I often use myself, that we needed a new world order. So in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, a new world is emerging. It is a new world order with significantly different and radically new challenges. And the hope that each of us has to build a new world order. And I surely believe India will be a central actor in the
0: new world order. So there you go. So again, this is just tying back into the series that I was doing on Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset. Again, this, and I I didn't plan it that way, but if you folks, especially if you listen to those episodes close together, you'll see my own confidence in asserting that, hey, this guy Schwab and his allies are up to no good increased even as I went through that series. In the beginning, I was just trying to say, hey, I report you to side. And by the end, I was basically saying, come on, folks, uh, let's call a spade a spade here. So again, my point is that this uh, blueprint for the future, that the call them what you will—the globalists, the technocrats—what they want—it's uh, been around for a while. They've been discussing it more or less openly, and it is what it is. Speaking of which, why don't we go ahead and listen to the opening comments from? Well, I don't know. That's opening comments, but comments from a panel talking about the new blockchain financial system from the World Government Summit of this year, 2022. Let's go ahead and take a listen.
2: And so I think we have to go deeper. And it's not about the U.S. versus China. It's about what underpins a world order is always the financial system. Hmm. I was very privileged. My father was an advisor to Nixon when they came off the gold standard in 71. And so I was brought up with a kind of inside view of how very important the financial structure is to absolutely everything else. We are on the brink of a dramatic change where we are about to, and I'll say this boldly, we're about to abandon the traditional system of money and accounting and introduce a new one. And the new one, the new accounting is what we call blockchain. It means digital. It means having a almost perfect record of Every single transaction happens in the economy, which will give us far greater clarity over what's going on. It also raises huge dangers in terms of the balance of power between states and citizens. In my opinion, we're going to need a digital constitution of human rights if we're going to have digital money. But also, this new money will be sovereign in nature. Most people think that digital money is crypto and private, but what I see are superpowers introducing digital currency. The Chinese were the first. The U.S. is on the brink, I think, of moving in the same direction. The Europeans have committed to that as well.
0: Okay. So let me just clarify something. Um, This was supposed to be the promise and then the Achilles heel, depending on your perspective of blockchain technology. So originally, and and I, for those of you who've listened faithfully to the show, you know that I bring this up when I talk to Bitcoin experts. But originally, I distinctly remember a lot of fans of Bitcoin and just blockchain in general were talking about how it was going to allow for anonymity. And then eventually that claim sort of faded away. And now you see that plenty of establishment types tout blockchain technology precisely because it's totally traceable. Right, And so there's a little bit of, both sides are saying true things when you understand the claim or or understand the actual mechanism. So just by its very nature, and if you want a fuller explanation, just go to the the PDF that's available for free that I did with Silas Barta called Understanding Bitcoin. So it's at understandingbitcoin.us. And we spell out the mechanics of it there if you want to really understand the details. But intuitively, what the blockchain does for us is, it, is this ledger of all the transfers of bitcoins or whatever the cryptocurrency happens to be from, let's say, one holder to another? And it's pseudo anonymous, meaning, so you as, an, as a human being, you can have 5,000 different bitcoin addresses. And so if somebody is sending, is transferring control of their units of bitcoins from their address over to yours, you know, and they, because they have their private keys, they're the only ones who are going to be able to do that such that the, the blockchain, the public ledger reflects the transfer of those units of Bitcoins from one address to a different one. So, you, you know, you, like I said, you could be the human who controls and has the private keys for those 5,000 different addresses. So from the perspective of the public ledger, we don't know that, you know, if your name's Joe Blow, We don't, and what was that like growing up, by the way? We don't know that you control all 5,000 of those, but what we do know, and it's quite obvious, is that Bitcoins were transferred to and from those particular accounts, or really its address is, is a better term to use. All right, so that's how it works. So again, it's a public ledger. That's the whole point. If it weren't public, if it were private, then you would be relying on some trusted individuals to maintain just like, Right now, with your conventional commercial bank, for example, the bank's computers keep track of the transactions. So if you go and deposit a $100 bill in an ATM, and then the bank's computer, you know, the screen there reflects the fact that, ah, oh, your, your checking account balance went from $30 up to $130 because you put that $100 bill in. Later, you could go to a different ATM and it could just say, oh, you only have $30. You say, what? And that's because the bank is the one in charge of keeping track of those transactions. And so if the bank makes a mistake or just deliberately defrauds you or, you know, somebody on the inside embezzles funds or even somebody on the outside hacks into it and steals it, you can't prove to the outside world that you deposited that $100 very easily, right? Because you're ultimately relying on your bank's internal systems and it's your bank's word, basically. Of course, they have competitive reasons to not consistently lose track of their customer's money. Otherwise, they go out of business. But you're ultimately relying on the integrity of their systems and their personnel. Whereas with the public blockchain, there's lots and lots of copies and computers all over the world. And anybody who wants to can go ahead and download the appropriate software and then boom, go get the current state of the public ledger, which, you know, an example of Bitcoin, that is a complete record of all transfer of Bitcoins, including the mining operations that like bring new Bitcoins into existence. since the thing was launched. All right. So that's how it works. And that's why that's like its strength. But then again, weakness, if if you're really uh, concerned about privacy, that because there's thousands and thousands of copies, I I don't know what the exact estimate is for right now, how many different ledgers are there around the world of of the Bitcoin blockchain. But because there's so many copies of it, that's why it would be hard for any rogue group to try to steal Bitcoins and just, you know, make up transfers and, and move a bunch to their own addresses because everybody else would realize, no, this is how the ledger looked 20 minutes ago. And so this is how it should look now, given the operations. Right. But then but at the same time, the only way that transparency persists and can be is if everybody has a complete record of all the transactions that have ever occurred on the Bitcoin blockchain. So if anybody can connect or associate an address with the human who's behind it and controls it, well, then you can start filling things in. All right. So that's, anyway, that's how that stuff works. And so you can see why if globalists are pushing digital currencies, that if it's a thing that they control, they would like that type of technology where all the transactions are there on a ledger for all to see for all time. It's just they don't like the spontaneity and decentralization of things like Bitcoin, but beyond that, I like that clip just to show that, yes, they're openly talking about a new world order. This is not something that conspiracy theorists are inventing. Okay, so continuing with our discussion of people who are tied in with the World Economic Forum, here's another clip I, I came across. Luke Radowski posted this from uh, our good friend Yuval Harari, who is the Israeli academic that I featured a few episodes ago, said a lot of creepy stuff. And here's some more creepy stuff that he's talking about. So let's go. Let's go ahead and play the clip and then we'll discuss.
1: In the industrial revolution of the 19th century, what humanity basically learned to produce was all kinds of stuff like textiles and shoes and weapons and, and vehicles. And this was enough for very few countries that underwent the revolution fast enough to subjugate everybody else. What we're talking about now is like a second industrial revolution, but the product this time will not be textiles or machines or vehicles or even weapons. The product this time will be humans themselves. We are basically learning to produce bodies and minds. Bodies and minds are going to be I think the two main products of the next wave of all these uh, changes. And if there is a gap between those that know to produce bodies and minds and those that do not, then this is far greater than anything we saw before in in history. And this time, if you're not part of the revolution fast enough, then you probably become extinct. Once you know how to produce bodies and brains and minds, so cheap labor in Africa or South Asia or wherever, it it simply counts for nothing. Again, I think that the biggest question in, maybe in economics and politics of the coming decades will be what to do with all these useless people. I don't think we have an economic model for that. My best guess, which is just a guess, is that food will not be a problem. Uh, with th- that kind of technology, you will be able to produce food for to feed everybody. The problem is more uh, boredom. And how, what to do with them and how will they find some sense of meaning in life when they are basically meaningless, worthless? My best guess at present is a combination of drugs and computer games.
0: Okay, so one thing before I get into the criticism, let me at least give a nod of the head or a tip of the hat to Harari for recognizing that food production won't be a problem. All right, so say what you will about some of these folks connected with the WEF, they're not dumb. And they understand things like the progress under capitalism. And so they realize that if we move into a world where we have tons of robots, AI, things like this, um, advances what Klaus Schwab calls the fourth industrial revolution, advances in other areas, and they all come together and there are synergies. It's not just independent progress in different fields, but the way they interact with each other is what Schwab says is really going to catapult us into the into the future. In that environment, being able to feed people and just provide their basic needs for sustenance, I mean, that's child's play. That's nothing. Whereas a lot of leftist Malthusians are, oh my gosh, we're overstraining the planet. And how can mother earth possibly carry 10 billion people? This is crazy. And no, it's not going to be a problem. I mean, I don't have the statistics at my fingertips here, but there's things like if you, could, you could take a billion people and put them in Texas and the amount of acreage each person would have is a big number, all right? So it's, there's plenty of land per se. Once humans figure out how to cost-effectively harness the ocean's potential, you know, just having floating cities and things like that and tapping into algae or phytoplankton or drilling down if we still use oil at that point, I mean, it's really we've literally just scratched the surface of the resources that are just on this planet, let alone if you want to go into space, all right? So that's not going to be an issue, right? It's not going to be, oh my gosh, Earth is running out of natural resources. How are we going to feed 10 billion hungry people? That's not an issue. And so to his credit, Harari gets that. His point was, what are we going to do once AI and robotics advances over the next few decades the way he thinks they will, it's going to render a large portion of humanity with basically zero economic value, right? That they're not, it's not gonna be worth them producing anything because the machines will be able to outproduce them. And so what's, what's the point? And then his answer, which horrified a lot of people was that, Oh, we'll just give them drugs and video games. So in fairness, at least the WEF types, the drugs and video games they're going to make are going to be really good high quality. So, you know, we'll at least give them credit for that. Much better than under old school communism. So in terms of the economics, I think I've touched on this before in the podcast, but let me just briefly go over it. I think this fear of robotics rendering humanity obsolete or human labor obsolete, or at least unskilled labor obsolete, I think that those fears are overblown, right? So one thing is just empirically, we haven't seen that yet, right? That what, what happens is the general course of progress that there's some new innovation and what could be called a labor saving device. And so much fewer people augmented with this new machinery or tools or whatever processes can produce a lot more of whatever the output is, a type of good or service than many such people would have been required before the introduction of the new labor saving device. And so what happens is output of that good and service goes way up and the amount of labor needed in that little niche goes down. And so does that spell disaster? Does that mean, you know, for example, lots of people were involved in the United States, let's say in agriculture in the year 1880, by the year 1950, a much lower percentage of the population was directly involved in agriculture and food output per capita was much higher than it had been. All right. And so if that was all you knew, somebody in the year 1880 who wasn't very imaginative and wasn't good at economics or at least free market economics, might have worried that, oh no, once, we, once all these tractors and fertilizer and irrigation techniques and such, put all these farm hands out of, out of work, because now, you know we forecast that what used to take a thousand people to harvest now only takes 20. And so what, what are those other 980 people going to do? Well, it turned out there were things that they, they went and did. So it freed them up to go do other things. And that's been happening since the dawn of civilization, right? With every technological advance, that's what's happened. It's not been, that oh, there's been a bunch of surplus labor. And then, you know, those people just couldn't find anything to do. There's always been new things they could do. So theoretically, could that change? And to their credit, some of the people warning about the coming AI problems and the billionaire types who are warning and and say, that's why we need to have UBI and so forth. And that's, I think the spirit of what Harari is talking about here. They're not ignorant of that history. Like they could say, oh yeah, and then just say this time is different. But I'm just reminding you folks that one could have plausibly worried about technology displacing human labor for centuries. And in fact, many people did worry about that. And yet so far that hasn't come to fruition. So. Part of what's related to this and why do I not think it's going to happen is that people consistently have been overestimating the advance of AI in conquering certain types of human tasks. And so I, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but apparently, I think it was like in the 50s, some researcher told his grad student over the summer, go work on vision, meaning like go figure out how we can make the computer be able to see. And so, of course, the kid, or the, you know, I was a kid, couldn't do it because they still have difficulty with that, right? And it's a very complex problem, It's and it's obviously not just, oh, bu- building a camera and attaching it so that the, the sensory input, the, the visual stimuli that the machine gets is of comparable quality to what the human eyeball can deliver to the nervous system. Obviously, that's, that's nothing, that's not a problem. They can do that. And of course, you know, they can give the machine infrared vision and so forth, be able to detect ultraviolet if they want. So it's, that's not an issue to be able to mimic a human's ability to receive electromagnetic input. The problem is information processing. How do you parse that? How do you navigate in an environment using visual input to make sense of where you are? And that's, a very difficult problem, and you know, they're obviously they've made progress, but that's the kind of thing where they tremendously underestimated how difficult that was going to be. And so, I think likewise with some of these other tasks, you know, things that AI can't do yet, but they assume, oh yeah, next twenty years we'll knock that out. I think there's going to be things that are going to persist that they don't realize how difficult it is. Now, in my interview with Jordan Peterson, I think he brought up we were talking about things like this, you know, automation and such, and do we need to have a higher minimum wage and things like that? And he was pointing out that even just something like a busboy, like it's, yeah, you can make machinery right now that can crank out hamburgers and, you, you know, fill the drink up to the appropriate level and stuff like that. And that's not a problem. But to make a, a robot that could go out and bus tables actually is tricky because there's lots of little things you got to worry about, like what we might call common sense. Right, So if it's not a very well-defined task, if there's lots of variables that could interrupt it and he needs to have judgment to know, hey, if there's a little kid who's sitting on the floor picking up his fries, don't roll over him when you're going to wipe up the spill. You know, Just stuff like that. If a customer left their wallet on the table, don't throw it out. Lots of things like that. If the plates are stacked on top of each other in a certain way, it would be hard to program the robot to pick them up to not accidentally knock them over. You know, there's all sorts of little things that a 16-year-old would just know, but it would presumably take like a lot of trial and error and mistakes to program that into the machines who could, of course, work and not get tired or slack off and you wouldn't have to worry about them stealing stuff the way you would have to worry about a human 16-year-old. All right, so there's lots of stuff like that that. So that's one element of it. But even beyond that, let's just take it with face value. So this fear of automation and so on, one way of looking at it, and I think I've made this point before, is that's what the Jetson's world looks like. where, Where machinery does just about everything and the humans just sit back and push buttons. So far from being a horrifying world where humans don't do anything, you could flip it around and say, no, it's again, freed us up so that the higher level things of judgment are what's reserved for the humans to do and then you say okay well what if the machines you know if the ai progresses to the point where they're better at everything even those higher level things so again i'm i don't think that's going to happen at least not anytime soon because i think there are elements of human creativity that you're they're going to find it's difficult to simulate or recreate mechanically algorithmically but even if they could okay so that you know, let's consider a slightly related scenario where a lot of the people who are born in the future just have high IQs or they're, they're strong. And to his credit, Harari also was talking about that stuff in the, in more, whether in this clip or just elsewhere. So this is partly what they're concerned about, this growing divide. But I want to claim that doesn't make the other people, the more mediocre people worse off. Just like, think of it this way, when Einstein comes along, he doesn't threaten the rest of humanity. All right? When Arnold Schwarzenegger comes along, it doesn't hurt everybody else or even it doesn't hurt the 10% weakest men, the existence of Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the existence of Einstein doesn't hurt the dumbest 10% of humans. Right? And so it's, you know, just think through, it's, it's an odd thing to be worried about making people smarter and stronger and, you know, superior in certain dimensions and to think that that's somehow going to spell problems for humanity. In general, that's not true. Historically, that hasn't been true even in terms of, uh, let me just do a quick thing in terms of the the economics of it when, well, you can have it and you can, so for grad students, I know there's probably some professional economists and students getting their PhDs and whatnot listening. So just think of a Cobb-Douglas production function. I'll, I'll talk shop for two seconds and then make it more general. In that kind of environment, what happens when you increase the capital stock, the marginal product of labor goes up, the marginal product of capital goes down. And so the more machinery there is to work with, that makes workers more valuable on the margin, an hour of their labor. And so the real wage rate rises. And so that's why like in in immigration models, when you start getting more complex and you allow for the fact that there's different types of labor, if you allow in a bunch of trained medical doctors from India that could conceivably lower the wages of other medical doctors in the United States, but it raises the wages of dishwashers. Why is that? Well, because what's happening in that particular example with those occupations I picked, it's not that it makes the dishwasher able to wash more dishes per hour, but what it means is the price of medical care goes down. And so the dishwasher now with the wages he's receiving from washing dishes can now buy more medical services, right? And they bringing more cardiologists and pulmonologists and so forth into the mix is not going to directly push down the wages of the dishwasher because they're not really competing with each other. right. So that's kind of the way to think about it. So again, whatever it is that these AI augmented controlled robots are going to do, they're going to be good at certain things that humans aren't good at, where they're going to excel. And so, again, it's even just in a general model, what would happen is, yes, the closer a human is to being a substitute to that thing, their wage rates would get pushed down. But at the same time, the wage rates of every human who's different in some dimension, their wage rates are going to get pushed up. In a I mean, like in real terms, like what, what can you go buy? terms of goods and services with your with your wages and just again what is it that humans are, are good at is they sort of the all-purpose thing like even you know in movies even like the movie 2001 how did when hale went nuts and how did he take out those, some of those uh astronauts well because he faked you know the the problem with the thing and they had to go out to fix it or it wasn't that hale could go fix his own satellite dish or whatever the problem was all right so I think that's going to be with us for a long time, that humans are actually pretty adaptable and all-purpose problem solvers and interacting with the physical world. And so they're always going to be there to fill the niches. And you could say, well, what if they run out of things to do? But there's an infinite number of things to do. All right. So that's my sort of pushback on Harari's bleak analysis for all these useless people. Now, let me transition a little bit so for people who are all riled up and oh yeah man these progressive leftists these globalist technocrats just besides them being wrong and having a bad a faulty moral system where just the way they view humanity just did you you hear them talk did you hear the arrogance and the smugness and the superiority and oh these people wow okay so
3: in that context let's check out this clip from a different conversation that i recently heard I started thinking about that. I'm like, if people naturally produce DMT in their brains, what if there is a connection line, a very, very faint one, but some people who are very creative and talented have a stronger line than those who don't. The people who are NPCs have had their their connection severed. That's why when they take DMT, they blast off and it just like opens up the portal and they see everything and then it closes. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, but I, I, I... it's a little bit wrong
4: from my understanding. We talked about this when I was on. Oh, that's
3: why I said it's a bunch of crazy ideas that probably make no sense. But it I'm makes perfect like, sense. I just think it's
4: incorrect. Oh, okay. It's very coherent. I, I, we talked about this when I was on with Alex, which is the idea that in the same way that um, a drawing of you or, or, or like the, a drawing of you is you in 2D and this is 3D Tim and the elves live in 4D, right? So we're 3D projections of 4D beings. Right. The point being that. In the same way that I could draw Batman and he exists in the drawing, but Batman doesn't exist in 3D here on this earth. A lot of people that we see around us in 3D don't exist in 4D. So they are, in fact, background characters who do not have a higher eye being. Well, so the machine elves tell you secrets. Okay. Do they? I
3: I wouldn't know. They 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 tell you anything? Well, that's what Alex Jones says. Yes, that's what Alex says. Yeah. So that's kind of my idea that it's that you're you're getting a connection to them, that they're explaining things to you and sharing ideas and information. And so those with more natural DMT in their system might have a stronger connection to hearing the whispers and the muse and the, and the secrets. Well, the other point that apparently there's a big distinction between people who take DMT and just
4: see kind of shapes and colors and those who actually communicate with these entities um and i don't know what what causes this divide uh, between the two groups maybe ian has some insight on i this. don't
3: know my experience with dmt is still really limited um i'm interested in in changing well, that at some point so you said that some people don't exist in four dimensions correct so they're npcs yes that's a scary thought why is it scary it's just fact what i'm thinking is no i just mean that there are some people out there that you know aren't it doesn't does, not the same, expl- does not really explain know. a lot it certainly does you know yeah. it, that's what i was saying that, that that's what i said earlier that you know for me personally i kind of feel like i have a soul I feel like there's a greater power out there. And some people don't. Maybe they literally don't have souls.
0: Right. Okay. So for those who don't know, that was from a recent appearance of Michael Malice on Tim Poole's show. So not making too big of a point of it here, but notice that on the right, there also is this current of, hey, a lot of people out there, you know, so what did Harari say? You talk about useless people and they're basically meaningless and worthless. And, you know, that's good. (laughs) <laughs> Michael Kamel is going around calling people NPCs, non-player characters. For don't people who don't know that terminology, what that is, in case you don't know what that is, is in video games. There's the characters that you know the, the players control, and they're more sophisticated, have a wider array of capabilities and things. Whereas the characters in the computer game, or sorry, the video game that the computer controls, you know, it's it's not another human being as the player controlling it. And so you're interacting with just this thing, it's it's much more limited. You know, it's like the person working at the coffee counter or something, or the person, you know, telling you, ah, to complete your quest, you need to go down and take a left at this hill and go fight this character, right? And that's all they do. They just sit there and keep telling you those directions over and over because they're not very sophisticated. There's not much under the hood. Whereas if you come into contact and you see an avatar and it's another human being in a different computer somewhere is controlling him because you guys are playing in this environment with players from around the world where they interact in the same terrain digitally well then that other character is going to be a lot more there's going to be a lot more there to deal with right especially if they can like type stuff and talk to you or text you and fight you and whatever because there's a human mind behind that one okay so a non-player character an npc is the mindless automaton that the computer controls and just has a very basic set of behaviors okay so People on the right have adopted this to, you know, dismiss their critics and like, oh wow, these people just, you know, everything is put put on more mask. Go get another vaccine, ha ha ha, and NPCs. So do with it what you will. And maybe you want to say, well, no, no, the difference is Bob. You know, when we dismiss ninety percent of humanity as not having souls, that's because we're right. When Harari does it, it's because he's creepy. Well, maybe, but I think, as a Christian, the correct analysis is that everybody has a soul. Yeah, some people are smarter than others, but some people are stronger than others. Some people are better at music than others. Some people are more talented at cooking than others. And there's lots of different dimensions on which you can rate people. And as a Christian, at least, if you want to say, well, what's their worth as a human being? It's not, oh, do they have the right response when it comes to uh, what should the marginal income tax rate be? that that's that's not really what makes you significant as a human being. In that light, let me wrap up. So I'm recording this right before Easter. By the time this thing gets processed and you folks are hearing it, it's going to be past Easter. But let me just go ahead and deal with one of the objections I heard because it comes up a lot. So I had tweeted out at the beginning of Holy Week, something like Christianity shows us the nature of humans. When God comes to visit, we murder him, something like that. And so then somebody was coming at me and blah, blah, blah. And somebody brought up, it was Daniel Keene, actually, who said, yeah, it's funny because there's that um, Nietzsche quote about God is dead and we kill him." And a lot of Christians get mad at that. But yet, isn't that literally what Christianity says? Okay, so yes and no. That Nietzsche is, for one thing, it's a character that he has saying that. It's not Nietzsche himself saying it. The character is not merely saying, "Oh, yes, Jesus came and we nailed him, or the Roman soldiers nailed him to a cross, and so we killed him." And Jesus was God. That's not what Nietzsche is saying, or the character that he's putting words in the mouth of, is saying. He's is saying that yes, like the West, because it abandoned superstitious beliefs and embraced science and rationalism, killed God. You know, I don't know exactly what what the time frame is for the character saying that, but presumably, like going into the nineteen hundreds, but it it's not a like, ha ha, take that God. That's not the point. The point is now that we've lost this mooring that used to undergird Western civilization, we're in trouble. So it's not necessarily saying that it was incorrect and that God does exist, but just saying Western civilization was founded upon belief in the God of the Judeo-Christian Bible. And now that we don't believe in such a God anymore, what's that gonna look like? And- the 20th century certainly was prima facie evidence that the widespread abandonment of belief in the God of the Bible was not a great thing. Again, that doesn't mean that I didn't just prove to you that that God must exist, but the point is the Western culture rested on that assumption. And when you take that away, other stuff can fall. And Jordan Peterson talks about that a lot. Hey, everybody, just your usual reminder. If you like what you're hearing here on the show, please consider contributing. Any amount helps, and a recurring monthly contribution is the best of all. For more details and to see the special perks you can get, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay, so anyway, so he said that, and then somebody, you know, know, I was like, saying, yep, I agree. And then some other guy chimes in and says, oh, well, given that tens of thousands of children die every day, it looks like God really is dead, something like that. So let me just address that. And that'll be the concluding thought for this episode. Put it this way. If the God of the Bible exists, he's completely sovereign. So yes, the existence of evil is a philosophical problem. And there is a sense in which Anything that happens, he allowed to happen doesn't mean he necessarily caused it, but he allows things to happen. And you could say, as a Christian, you know what people intend for evil, God ultimately turns for good. But nonetheless, yes, evil things do occur. But on this issue of children dying, you know whether it's a car accident or they have cancer or a lion eats them or something. Let me just let's just walk through that for a little bit. So given. That the God of the Bible exists, just for the sake of argument, again, no matter what happens on this earthly plane, ultimately is up to the sovereignty and authority of God. So, whether you, so there's a sense in which anybody who dies ever from any cause, you could say God killed them in that sense. All right. So, whether it's somebody who's born and lives to be 90 and has 17 grandkids and dies quote, of old age, naturally, quote, in his sleep. There's a sense in which, well, God designed the whole structure of reality, you know, so that that happened. So God killed that guy. And somebody who gets hit by a bus when he's three years old and wanders out in the street, yep, God designed the structure of reality the laws of physics, blah, 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 such that that happened. You know, he could have, if he wanted to, he could have made it so that bus driver wasn't texting and saw that kid and swerved but he didn't, he didn't intervene. Okay, so no matter what happens, there's a sense in which everybody who dies, it's because God allowed it to happen. And so I, I guess what I'm saying is the dis, this distinction that atheists with their glib criticisms make there about, oh, well, you know, God killed all these children. When you say, well, every day it's not just children that's dying, it's old people too. And so now you push it back a step. And I've heard other atheists say things like, well, what's the point of leaving us on earth to suffer if we're going to be with God in paradise ultimately? You know, why would a good God do that? Was this just for, you know, to amuse him? Like we're going to be his marionettes in some play for his sick satisfaction or something before he then lets us cavort in bliss with him. We're going to have to go through this earthly suffering. That's sick. That's twisted. Why would he do that? So just notice when a kid is born if he has to stick around on earth for a long time, there's a plausible sense in which the atheist might say, that's perverse. Why would God make you sit down here and endure human suffering? Why not just have him be with you right away? But then if you die at a young age, the atheist also can say plausibly, why would a good God let that happen? Okay. And now you could refine it and say, well, sure. I mean, why, why doesn't it just make the kid just disappear without any pain and get, you know, get taken up at, Two seconds old, you know, years old, or, or sorry, two seconds old. And yeah, I'm not going to be able to solve that problem right here in two seconds or two sentences, but I, I hope I'm at least getting you to see really these types of critiques reduced to why was I born, right? That, in other words, like, why does this earth exist at all? You know, what, why should there be this earthly plane? And, you know, that's obviously a very deep question, but given that we're going to live on the earth, then a lot of these other questions is kind of arbitrary that, you know, how long you're here and whatever. It's not obvious that, well, the longer you're here, is that a good thing or a bad thing? What would a loving God do? And in terms of the absolute amount of suffering, again, it's, this is what we know. So put it to you this way, regardless of how God designed the universe and what this earthly condition would be like, the worst thing that ever happened to somebody would necessarily be the worst thing that ever happened to somebody. And I think people would calibrate their viewpoint accordingly. So the example I like to use, sort of silly one, is uh, in Return of the Jedi, Star Wars episode six, C-3PO is is like the the spokesman for Jabba the Hut, And so he's telling Han Solo that, hey, you're going to get punished by getting thrown into the to this thing. And he says, in his belly, you will find a new definition of pain and suffering as you are slowly digested over a thousand years. Okay, so that's something that George Lucas, I guess, came up with. And that's pretty horrible. That's way worse than anything that can actually happen in our world. All right, and so going the other way, in our world, if the worst thing that ever happened to people was getting a paper cut, then you know, people would be going around saying, do you know how bad the Nazis are? They were like giving people paper cuts left and right. And people were like, oh, those monsters. Okay. And so I, again, I'm not trying to make light of actual human suffering. And I know things have happened to people that are worse than the worst thing has happened to me in my life so far. But again, my point is you could actually imagine things that are way worse than what happened. And so again, with these things, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's difficult to say just a priori, oh no, good God wouldn't allow that sort of thing to happen. And again, it's easy for me to sit here and say this in relative comfort. But, you know, I I think from the vantage point of if we could step outside the way our universe works and just say, imagining, all you know, alternate universes, again, it's it's, it's not so obvious, or, or I think the critics, when they say, oh, well, gee, well, if I were the omnipotent being designing the universe from scratch, I would do it this way. It's not obvious to me that actually your thing would be superior, right? There, there's lots of consequences for making decisions about, well, is the world going to work like this? And of course, one of the huge things is, are we going to have free will? And you know, once you decide, yes, I want the beings in this universe to have free will, well, then a lot of things necessarily follow. And you could say, well, why? And well, do we want the world to be rational? Do we want there to be cause and effect? Do we want logical consistency to be obeyed? Well, if you say yes to those things and arguably a good God would want those things to be true, then there you go. Okay, so I'll wrap it up there. Hope you folks had a happy Easter
1: and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.